Welcome to American Ambassadors Events, the podcast that allows listeners to sit in on otherwise exclusive events hosted by the Council of American Ambassadors. This episode features a presentation on key pressure points in the Middle East by Dr. Aaron David Miller at the Council's Contentious Neighbors Conference on May 7, 2019. This session was moderated by CAA member Ambassador William Eco. We're very uh, lucky to be joined today by Dr. Aaron David Miller, who, as we all know, is one of our country's foremost experts on the Middle East. And his, while his official topic is the Saudi-Iran contention, hopefully we'll also go beyond that and just talk about what's happening in the Middle East in general and some of the history, et cetera. He has been involved in the history. There's, I don't think there's anyone who's been more involved in the history of the Middle East in terms of U.S. efforts to bring peace uh, in the Middle East. Uh, he was involved in Oslo. He was involved in Camp David. He's, he's spent 23, 24 years at the State Department, mostly at INR as an analyst, but also in the policy planning staff and mostly working on Middle East as an advisor to multiple presidents on both sides of the aisle. So he brings a unique perspective. He's currently a, a scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Institute. And as you know, he's the author of multiple books. Uh, but hopefully, he'll be able to uh, speak very candidly with us today about not only the, the history we've seen, what's happening now, but you know, are there any prospects going forward? So Sorry. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to try to do the impossible, which is in 20 minutes or less, not just talk about uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, but to, to talk a little bit about uh, American policy in the Middle East. I usually entitle this talk, Gulliver's Troubles, America in the Middle East. And I, and I think that's right. I mean, I, I can talk about the Trump administration, but the, the problems that we face are generational in that region. And um, let me just make three points so you'll understand where I'm coming from. First of all, having worked for Republicans and Democrats and voted for them, it, too, it is my own view that the, the most uh, effective policy for the United States abroad is not, the dividing line is not between left and right, liberal, conservative, Republican, or Democrat. It is not. It is between dumb on one hand and smart on the other. And the only thing that counts, the only thing is which side of the line do you want America to be on? The smart side? or the dumb side. If you want it to be on the smart side, there are certain things, in my judgment, that each of us can do in order to ensure or increase the odds of that happening. Number two, um, I'm from a real estate family in Ohio where the central proposition is location, location, location in order to succeed. And it's my contention that if you want to understand American foreign policy, not just toward the Middle East, but toward the world at large, you must begin with a geographic analysis of where we are. Because where we are determines what we do. We are sandwiched, the only great power in the history of the world, with no exceptions, that are sandwiched between two, and I choose my words very carefully, non-predatory neighbors. Non-predatory neighbors to our north and south, and literally fish to our east and west, what one historian, I wish it had been me, called our liquid assets. These liquid assets, these oceans, explain volumes about who we are and why we behave the way we do. It explains our naivete. We no longer function 
and operate as a small power, if we ever did, perhaps for a brief period of time when we were precariously perched along a narrow slice of the eastern seaboard in the late 18th century, where you had the Brits, the French, and the Spanish in our backyard, perhaps there was an existential threat then. But since the Civil War, no. These oceans and these non-predatory neighbors, the Canadians and the Mexicans, explain our idealism. We've never figuratively been occupied as a nation, briefly perhaps by the British. We've lost any sense of the darker dimensions of what other powers in the world have to deal with. When John Kerry, uh, a man I, I like, once uh, as Secretary of State said that Vladimir Putin is behaving as if he were living in a 19th century world, I mean, the fact is that no Russian leader, none, can escape the two forces of history and geography that impel not just the Russians, but the Chinese, the Egyptians, the Israelis, the Palestinians, the, the Iranians. We, to an extent that is humanly possible for any nation, have managed to free ourselves from the forces of history and geography. And finally, it explains, in my judgment, our arrogance. Because we have a margin for error that no other great power in the world has. We can make many mistakes, and we have, without creating or presenting or accelerating an existential threat to the security and well-being of the nation because of our detachment and our separation from the rest of the world. My conceit here is that we, and I would include myself here, having worked for half a dozen secretaries of state, George Schultz to Colin Powell, in this broken, angry, dysfunctional region called the Middle East, are wandering around as if we were, as if we were a modern-day Gulliver, tied up by tiny tribes whose interests sometimes correspond with ours and sometimes do not, and also tied up by our own illusions. And we are stuck in this region. So I want to spend the next five minutes just identifying five regional trends that, in my judgment, make the Middle East no long, the, make the new Middle East no longer like the old one. Number one, Arab state dysfunction. The three Arab states that dominated inter-Arab politics in the Middle East for a good 70 years, Egypt, Syria, and Iraq, to use my words, are, are all offline. They are groping with the most essential problems that confront any nation. Can they provide that? Can they control their own territory? Can they create a compact among competing ethnic and national groups? Can they manage the external powers, in the case of Syria and Iraq, that seek to influence and dominate their national life? Egypt is somewhat different, the largest and most homogeneous and most powerful Arab state, but it too struggles with internal political and economic problems, which, in my judgment, has diminished its capacity to project its power beyond its borders, primarily in a political sense. I remember traveling with every single Secretary of State, from George Shultz to Colin Powell. We stopped in Cairo first, always, to coordinate. And I, I post-dated Sadat at the State Department. But nonetheless, Husni Mubarak was viewed as a partner. And we tested ideas on the Egyptians. And they enabled 
um, enabled us primarily in Arab-Israeli peacemaking in, in many very positive ways. Now, the Egyptians still play that role, as you have seen over the last 72 hours, in brokering, brokering and mediating a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, but it's not quite the same thing. So that's the first issue. The Arab world, at least the traditional powers, are not as capable as they once were competing with one another or projecting their power abroad. Second, part of the problem is a function of what I call empty spaces. Those empty spaces are inhabited by transnational actors. Any number of groups, jihadi groups, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, all of the derivatives of ISIS, that have thrived on the dysfunction, the ethnic tensions, the sectarian tensions that beset both Iraq and Syria. And they, these groups, make the problem of coherent government, functional governance, creating security and prosperity for the vast majority of Iraqis and Syrians. Syria is in the prospect still of the aftermath of a brutal civil war, and, and may, it may take decades, if ever, Syria will emerge as a coherent actor with a centralized authority. But the problem of empty spaces is critically important, not just for governance, clearly, but for American security. And let me be very clear here. The administration, this one, uh, to some degree like, like its predecessor, uses the word defeating ISIS, enduring defeat. Now, Americans love declaring war on things, the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on mental illness, the war on poverty, the war on cancer. The lat latter we will win because it's a scientific technical issue. The others, these other wars have been going on for decades. We're not winning the war on poverty. We're managing. We're not winning the war on drugs, clearly. We're managing. And the same logic has to be applied, I would argue, to these transnational jihadi groups. This is not Germany and Japan. We will not defeat them in the conventional sense, break their will to fight, and help these nations, as we help Germany and Japan, create an environment in which the ideology of these jihadi groups uh, continues to thrive. And courtesy of the internet, project their, as Sri Lanka has demonstrated, project their power without the need for terror sanctuaries. And this is an important point, because it gets to the issue of how America should combat this phenomena. Do we do it with the projection of American power and ground troops? Well, you have Iraq and Afghanistan as, as test cases. Third, I would argue, as the Arab world has melted down to some degree, the non-Arabs have emerged as critically important and very functional actors. Three non-Arabs, in my judgment, are all functional and are all capable of projecting their power abroad. Turkey, Iran, and Israel. They are all relatively stable domestically. They all have tremendous economic potential. They have militaries and intelligence organizations that are more than competent. One is a member of NATO. One is America's closest ally in the Middle East. And the third, Iran, is an outlier. I'm not arguing that there's a, a way to get these three together, to harness the, the power and the resources. But take note of the fact that these three can act. They have agency. And they can, in fact, project their power. And with 
an Arab world that is highly dysfunctional, you can see exactly how they can act, sometimes expeditiously, sometimes not, in pursuit of their own interest. Four, the Gulf has emerged to try, in some respects, to fill the vacuum created by the absence of Egypt, Syria, and Iraq, primarily Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. And we clearly have a stake in ensuring that these regimes are stable. But at the same time, we also have a stake in ensuring that American interests and values are also protected. And I would argue, uh, take, take this as an editorial comment if you want, but I believe that our relationship with Saudi Arabia has come to the point of serious dysfunction, where neither our interests nor our values, frankly, are being promoted. And let me be very clear here. No administration that I ever worked for, from George Shultz to George W. Bush, ever adopted any other policy other than trying to figure out a way to work with the Saudis for obvious reasons. But the degree to which our current policy has become hostage to the impulses, the sensibilities, and the interests of a single individual, in my judgment, has somehow squandered the leverage we do have and, in effect, created a situation where a small power, however important to the United States, has become far too dominant. I'm not arguing we should, we should work to undermine the relationship or abandon it. But to some degree, as events over the last year have shown, culminating in the, in the brutal, willful murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and I'm not a I'm not a objective observer on this on this matter. Jamal was a friend of mine. He was to come to the Wilson Center as a visiting Arab journalist. Um, but there are other things the Saudis have done. So while the Gulf has remained stable, it's weathered the Arab Spring with a degree of security and stability that I think has surprised many people. It has its own fair share of problems, and we have to figure out a, a better way to manage, manage them. Five, and this, in, in essence, is the problem we confront. We are stuck in this region. I describe it as broken, angry, dysfunctional. I'm just reporting. I'm not here to make you happy. I'm not here to make you sad. I'm here to report. It is the most dysfunctional, broken region in the world. Fewer democracies, fewer integration with the rest of the world. Six out of the 10 major terror, terror groups, according to CIA, emanate in the Arab and Muslim world. We are stuck in this broken, angry, dysfunctional region. We have three choices. One is transformation, to somehow believe we, we living thousands of miles away from this region, with very little of an existential stake in it, are somehow going to transform it. We're going to induce these regimes to somehow comply, change, reform, consistent with the values and the principles that we hold dear. I would argue that, the, that since 2001, the last 18 years in Afghanistan and Iraq, have demonstrated with a frightening clarity 
that transformation is out of the question. And one of the most redemptive qualities of this administration, continuing its predecessor's trend toward risk aversion, is that it is not interested in getting America into any new wars it cannot win, and it is interested in getting America out of wars that has sapped our, our power, uh, respons been responsible for the deaths and injuries of thousands of Americans, not to, mention, not to mention Afghans and Iraqis, and squandered our credibility uh, as well. So I would argue to you, no transformation. A second option is extrication. Why not just leave it all behind? Let's just withdraw. Well, the reality is we have allies, we have adversaries, we have interests, we cannot just withdraw. So, no transformation, no extrication, what's the answer? Well, I believe, and based on 25 years of working for the, in good faith on the, in the interest of the Republic, I believe that the smart play in this region is what I call transaction, smart transaction. No transformation, no extrication. Transaction means the following. You identify what your core interests in this region really are. You correlate means and ends. You don't allow your rhetoric to get so far out ahead of what you're prepared to do that you squander your credibility and your believability. And you drill down on these interests and you do not distract yourselves with discretionary enterprises. However important they may be, you can try to manage some of these other problems, but you can't adopt an, uh, an attitude that somehow we have the capacity to fix it all. I remember when we briefed Bill Clinton a couple days before the Camp David summit, it's hard to believe it's 19 years ago this July, and he said something to us. Trying and failing, he said, is, is better than not having tried at all. And I, it's so quintessentially American. How could you argue with such a proposition? To try and fail is better than not having tried at all. Get in the arena. If you don't try, how can you ever succeed? And I remember how moved I was. I was a lot younger then. But I thought on reflection, and I've spent the last 16 years since leaving government in the public conversation trying to create a baseline of reality to make my fellow citizens understand that trying and failing is better than not having tried at all is an appropriate slogan for the University of Michigan football team. It is not a substitute for the foreign policy of the greatest nation on earth. Be why? Because failure costs. I would argue the most compelling ideology in the world is not communism, not capitalism, not nationalism, and not even democracy. The most compelling ideology in the world is success. Because success generates power and constituents. And failure generates the opposite. So I would argue to you quite simply, given the price we've paid in this region, we have three interests, three vital interests and by vital, I mean what an American president would be prepared to sacrifice American lives, American treasure, and American credibility. 
Three, one, preventing a galactic attack against the continent of the United States. And frankly, we're doing pretty well in that regard. The 100 Americans killed since 9-11, the vast majority of those who died in jihadi-related attacks, attacks carried out by permanent legal residents of the United States or US citizens. The notion that 9-11 happened because a bunch of guys were running around in Afghanistan with AK-47s may be right, but they got into the United States. They crossed American borders 68 times. They trained at American flight schools. We're a lot better now guarding against the external efforts to orchestrate and carry out attacks here. But we may well be the new sanctuary. That's the problem. And we cannot afford, nor should we, both in terms of our values or our interests, to antagonize, to alienate, to stigmatize, the three million plus American Muslims who live here, they're the first line of defense. How we prosecute the transnational jihadi war abroad is a very good question, but we have to be smart about it. I would argue you don't have to do it by deploying thousands of American uh, combat forces. Second, oil. Terror is the first interest, counter-terror oil is the second. We may have freed ourselves from Arab hydrocarbons, and we are now the largest energy exporters in the world. Venezuela, in our hemisphere, has the largest oil reserves in the world. We are actually attaining energy security, but we are not freed from the realities that oils trade, oil trades in a single market. You, dis you disrupt supply in, in country X, it has an impact on country Y. Ultimately, it affects the US financial system. Others may dependent, be dependent, still dependent on Middle East oil. We are, we are not, but we still have a stake in ensuring its free flow, I would argue at relatively moderate prices if we can manage it. That's the second vital interest. It gets to the whole question of American prosperity. The first gets to the question of American security. And the third is, in my judgment, stopping the emergence of any regional hegemon, particularly one with a nuclear weapon. I would argue to you those are the three core interests that we have in this region. And frankly, on the first two, we're actually doing pretty well, even though the Middle East is angry, broken, and dysfunctional. I don't know about the third, because the most likely candidate is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And that nuclear agreement was a highly flawed, but also functional arms control agreement. That's what it was intended to do. It was not intended to transform the relationship. The US-Iranian relationship may never come round. I don't know. Our values and our interests collide. But certainly, we have a stake in constraining and restraining, if we can, Iran's nuclear weapons program. So let me just, um, how are we doing on time? Um, let me just uh, identify two or three issues with respect to policy. First, the Arab-Israeli issue. We may be a month away from the Trump administration um, putting out its deal of the century or its ultimate deal. I've had several meetings with Jared Kushner um, and Mr. Greenblatt. 
meeting Jared for the first time, I said, I wish my father-in-law had as much confidence in me as yours has in you, because he's given you Mission Impossible. And the fact is, in my judgment, he laughed and said it was hard. Of course it's hard. But the focus of how to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not in Washington. We have a role to play, but the, the truth is neither Benjamin Netanyahu or Mahmoud Abbas have the intention, the will, or the capacity to make the kinds of decisions on the six core issues that drive the Israeli-Palestinian conflict so as to narrow gaps so that an external mediator can actually bridge the gaps. You ever heard the expression in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car? It's a wonderful bit of philosophy. I use it all the time. And most people, yeah, you know, we don't wash rental cars. Although two weeks after I speak, I'll usually get a letter in the mail, usually from a mother, a wife, or a girlfriend. And the letter will enclose a receipt for a car wash that her son, boyfriend, or brother uh, most people don't wash their rentals because people, sadly, I guess, care only about what they own. And the problem in the Israeli-Palestinian arena is the absence of ownership. It is no coincidence that every breakthrough in this region occurred without the foreknowledge of the United States. Diane shows up in Washington in October 1977. I joined the State Department two months later to brief my predecessors on the fact that he had been meeting secretly with Sadat's presidential advisor, Tahami. The Israelis and Jordanians have been meeting for decades discreetly and hammered out their own peace treaty signed in October of 1994. The Israelis and Palestinians, talking to Bill earlier, made a heroic effort at Oslo. It failed. But I was on vacation on the west coast of Florida when the State Department Operations Center called and said, you better get back here immediately. Secretary Christopher is on his way to California to see Foreign Minister, Norwegian Foreign Minister Johan Holst and Shimon Peres. They want to sign an agreement on the South Lawn of the White House, which they did in September of 1993. The, the agreements that endure and even the ones that don't are driven by ownership. The parties care more about the process and the need to act than the United States. And it is as it should be. So with all due, whatever Mr. Kushner and Mr. Trump decide to put out, and I told Mr. Kushner I would be the first to raise a glass uh, if it was credible. I also told him, if it's not credible, then I will be out there telling people why. Because it's important that even if it fails, the perception is that the US tried mightily and fairly to address the needs and the interests of both sides. And I say this without trivializing for a minute the special nature of the relationship that we have with the state of Israel. But my former boss, Jim Baker, would say that relationship can be very useful as long as the special relationship doesn't become exclusive, wherein we undermine our own credibility by becoming too close, by becoming too close. And that's a controversial thing to say these days for an administration that has, in my time in government, 
demonstrated a preternatural willingness to support just about everything that the Israelis do. It's not logical that two nations' interests can coincide on every single issue across the board. It defies the political laws of gravity and rationality. It can't be. And Israel is living on top of a volcano. It has huge security problems, which need, we need to respect. But we also need to understand that we have our interests as well, and those need to be protected. Iran and US policy, I don't know what is going to be. Um, going back to the Iran nuclear agreement on the same terms, in my judgment, is going to be impossible. You already hear, forget Republicans, uh, but you hear Democrats already campaigning, talking about getting a better deal, improving the terms. There's no problem with that, because by the time, assuming you had a Democratic president in 2020, several of the provisions of this agreement will have already lapsed. And the domestic politics, Iran's going to have parliamentary and presidential elections in 2021. This is not a good time to negotiate, renegotiate an agreement. But if the current administration's policy is not designed to bring Iran back to the table through a campaign of maximum pressure, then what is it designed to do? I don't want to prejudge the, uh, the policy. What is it designed to do? Fracture the regime? Make it collapse? Change it? You see what's happening with Mr. Maduro in Venezuela. You begin to understand, even with proximity in our own hemisphere, even with the fact that you actually have a legitimate opposition, legitimized by the Venezuelan Constitution, even though you have 50 countries and an international consensus in favor of changing Maduro, you have none of these things in Iran, none. And Iran can hurt us badly if we're not careful. It has the capacity to respond. In Syria and Iraq, so do we. But we're not of the neighborhood. They are. And for them, it will be an existential issue. It is not an existential issue for a Republican or a Democratic administration. Um, let me close on an uplifting note. Um, the first and last president that ever had an imp emotional impact on me was Jack Kennedy. I was 12 when he was murdered. Kennedy said something about himself, which I basically have stolen. And I would argue to you, it is the appropriate mantra um, and organizing principle for how the United States should behave abroad. Kennedy described himself, <clears throat> excuse me, as an idealist without illusion. That's where we should be. Idealism without illusion. Never giving up on the prospect that you can be changed, your country can be changed for the better, the world can be changed for the better. But as you go about this process of change, we're obligated to go about it with our eyes wide open. Thank you very much. Questions? Stuart Bernstein. Go ahead, Stuart. Aaron, that was the most brilliant oh, overview please, oh, please. I've ever heard. Please, Stuart. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, give us some insight into this Hamas-Israel uh, thing that's going on back and forth. What's that all about? You know, I, I, there's a, I, I mentioned to you there's a great article in the New York Times this morning by David Halpfinger, who's the Jerusalem Bureau Chief of the Times. He called me yesterday for a quote, and I have a quote in there. I, I, and I've argued before 
that Hamas and Israel, in many respects, need one another. Now, it's a counterintuitive statement, but in my judgment, it's absolutely true. Benjamin Netanyahu is a tremendously risk-averse Israeli prime minister. He does not want to launch a major ground incursion into Gaza in an effort to exterminate the Hamas leadership, because he knows, as I quote, was quoted in the New York Times today, that there's a day-after problem. What happens when Hamas is gone? Do the Israelis reoccupy Gaza? We've seen that movie. Sharon disrupted the political ethos in Israel by unilaterally withdrawing Israeli settlements and settlers, roughly 8,000 in 2005. It was a national trauma. Second, you have the problem of jihadi groups like ISIS derivatives that operate in Sinai that are much more vicious and less controllable, controllable than Hamas. And finally, this is my own personal view, I think that Benjamin Netanyahu understands that a three-state solution in which Hamas governs Gaza, Abbas governs 40% of the West Bank, and the State of Israel, a three-state reality, it's not a solution, uh, will make achieving a two-state solution much more difficult. And in many ways, he looks at Hamas as his insurance policy. So what you've seen since 2008 First confrontation in 0809, second 2012, third 2014, and a series of what you saw over the last four days occur, not as severely, but several times since 2014, within a five-year period, with no outcome. Right now, the Israelis and Hamas are negotiating through cutouts, largely the Egyptians and the UN mediator, to put together a package of economic steps that will make this ceasefire last longer. How much longer? Unclear. Expanding the fishing zone, easing restrictions on import into Gaza, allowing the cutteries uh, to deliver roughly $30 million in cash every month, literally, a physical courier from Qatar, um, and supplementing that also with uh, assistance from other Arab states. That's the deal, and if that deal holds, and if the ceasefire holds, you could imagine um, deeper engagement, not direct, but deeper engagement in order to remedy the fact that for two million Palestinians in Gaza, life is miserable. They need infrastructure, water, sewage, electricity, reliably and predictably. That, in my judgment, has been the pattern. Whether it's a headline or a trend line is another matter because they are not friends, frenemies, adversaries who are prepared to be pragmatic and practical with one another seems to be the, uh, the best description. But make no mistake, and I'm not criticizing Benjamin Netanyahu. In his own view, he was not put here to become the father or the midwife of a Palestinian state. That's not who he is. That's not who he ever was, and he's never going to agree to it. But he knows that as long as the Palestinian national movement looks like Noah's Ark, two of everything, two statelets, two constitutions, two sets of security services, two external patrons, there can never be a Palestinian state. Because, because whether you're Washington, D.C. or Chevy Chase, Maryland, where I live, you must have a monopoly over the forces of violence in your society. You must control all of the guns in order to be taken seriously by your citizens 
and by your neighbors. If you can't control all of the guns in the and I'm not talking about the gun problem we have here. I'm talking about organized political elements that assert their independence through violence and terror. You can't control that. You cannot be a state. And as long as two million Palestinians are governed by Hamas in Gaza, if I were an Israeli prime minister, I would never make that deal unless Palestine could speak with authority, both in terms of what they promised to deliver in negotiation and all of the guns of Palestine. Extremist guns will never be silenced. There will be individuals, as there are here. But you need a monopoly over the forces of violence within your society in order to be credible. And the Palestinian National Movement and Palestinians sadly do not have it. Let me add to that question, a follow-up question. For previous administrations on both sides of the aisle leaned heavily on Israel to slow down the settlement process, to not open new settlements, et cetera. This administration has backed off considerably. Uh, with the, the proliferation of settlements in the West Bank, is a two-state solution ever even feasible, or should we just give up on that idea? You know, I, this question is unanswerable. Um, my own personal views, I have two kids. My son's getting married, actually, on Saturday in Philadelphia. My daughter, Jenny, lives in, in Brooklyn. And I think to myself, you know, I occupy a very, uh, for a very short period of time, I, I occupy a space on this planet. Can I tell them to whom the future belongs? Never. Do I have the right to say that or to think that way? My answer is no. I have no more illusions, but I have not given up hope because I believe it is not unconscionable to give up hope. So I would say to you, even though the odds do not favor, you need, heroic, you need leaders of a heroic stature in order to do this. But if, do I think that settlement activity has made the two-state solution impossible? The fact is that 80% of those Israelis who live beyond the Green Line in the West Bank um, can be reintegrated into the state of Israel in the settlement blocks in which they live, which are mostly contiguous to the so-called Green Line, that which divides pre-67 Israel from post, 80% if, in fact, you could get a negotiation going and two leaders <clears throat> were prepared to step up. It doesn't address the problem of the other 110,000 Israelis who will live in isolated settlements well beyond the contiguous or the proximate area of the Green Line. And look what it took in 2005 for Sharon, one of the most authoritative leaders, controversial in the history of the state. The architect of the, do you know who Menachem Begin commissioned in 1982 to take down the Sinai settlements of Yamit in order to get peace with Egypt? Sharon. Sharon built the settlements, and Sharon was the only Israeli leader that was capable of taking them down. Whether or not you'll actually ha you could ever have another Israeli leader like that, I don't know. I don't think it's the absence of creative fixes or settlements. It's the absence of will. So, or I choose to believe it is. Sorry. Let's go out to the audience. Ambassador McCormick. <clears throat> what is your judgment about the core message of the film, The Gatekeepers, where you had the four former leaders of the Shin Bight, which basically said that uh, unless 
that unless there is a, pro a political solution to the problem, they would ultimately fail because they could only deal with a tactical situation for a limited period of time. I mean, I watched that movie. I worked with several of former heads of Shin Bet, um, charged with protecting Israeli in internal security and dealing with the Palestinians. They knew, their they knew Palestinian flaws and uh, strengths intimately. Um, look, my own view is this. Ben Franklin said it better than I did. Proximity, he said, breeds contempt. And he added children. The reality is Israelis and Palestinians have a proximity problem. Their lives are inextricably linked together. And they have to separate. For, for the good of creating a responsible Palestinian state, preserving the Jewish democratic character of the state of Israel, separation through negotiations and satisfying the political needs of both sides is critically important. Uh, I think, Bill, you asked, or, or Stuart, was it you, before about uh, the, what if we gave the Palestinians $10 billion? The truth is, if we could have bought a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we would have done it already. A chicken in every pot, a computer in every home is necessary, but it's not sufficient. This is not a, it's, not a, it's a real estate deal, I reminded Mr. Kushner, in one respect, but it goes so far beyond that. It's a struggle over identity, national trauma, and religion, how you resolve the issue of Jerusalem. History teaches that Jerusalem is not to be shared, despite the traditions of the three great Abrahamic religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. History would teach you that Jerusalem is to be possessed in the name of God, the tribe, or the nation. That's the way it's read, sadly, tragically. So. I, in my judgment, yes, the gatekeeper approach to this is correct. It's just in order to do that, you need a degree of leadership that we simply do not have on both sides of the line. And this leadership deficit applies not just to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, not just to the Middle East, it is a global phenomenon. 193 countries sit in the UN. How many are headed by leaders who you could honestly describe as both transformational and transactional? Last book I wrote was called The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. And the book was an effort to dispel the notion of presidential greatness. Forget great. Great is only accompanied by nation-encumbering crisis. That's why we only had three great, undeniably great presidents, one in the 18th century, one in the 19th century, and one in the 20th, because their tenures coincided with the three greatest crises this nation has ever faced. And the founders planned it that way. They didn't want, they wanted power to be distributed and separated and shared to avoid the problem that they saw of quote unquote great men, because they feared great men. Rightly so. Look at their experience with the royal governors and the king.
So you don't want another great president, because if you want one, buckle up. If you're lucky, you'll have a nation-encumbering crisis. Not 9-11, which lasted a brief period of time, not even 12 days in October of 1962, but a crisis that threatens, in an enduring fashion, the well-being, security, and prosperity of the nation. What you want, in my judgment, are good presidents. Good in the sense that they're good, they're competent. Good in the sense that they're good morally and ethically. They function within certain clear moral and ethical parameters. And good in the sense that they have emotional intelligence. They know about their own demons and they keep them under control and they have the capacity, above all, to turn the M in me upside down so it becomes a W in we. You get one of those presidents, and we may actually have a chance to address the slow bleeds that are undermining the, the power, identity, and capacity of this country. One last point. The word I is only mentioned once in the Constitution. Do you know why? I didn't know this before I wrote this book. Do you know why the word I? And Gibbon described uh, the word I as the most disgusting of pronouns. Why, why did the founders put the word I in the Constitution? It's there because in Article 2, they embedded the inaugural oath in the document. And they did it, I think, to remind all of us that the president is derivative of the power of the document, which is derivative of the sovereign power of the people, however much they may have distrusted the people. It's something that, that gives us all a stake in participating in this presidential debate. Sorry to drone on, but the, the interests of the republic, it's not the Middle East, frankly. I mean, Lincoln said it in the 1830s. No great power will ever try the Appalachian Trail or drink the waters of the Ohio. If we die, it will be by our own hand. By Nat, what he described as, we will be the authors of our own suicide. This was in the 1830s. So, leadership, necessary for sure, not sufficient. We all have to participate. But critically important to solving the hope of solving the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and critically important to the future of this country. Sorry, I just feel really strongly about this. That was Dr. Aaron David Miller at the Council of American Ambassadors Contentious Neighbors Conference. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to American Ambassadors events on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. 